1 Samuel chapter number 24. First Samuel chapter number 24. By, by show of hands, how many of you have a calendar of some sort in here? Pretty much everybody. Okay. I remember when I was seven or eight years old, I was really into cowboy stuff and horses and ranching and bull riding and all that, that stuff. So I had a cousin named Justin who for my birthday, looking back, it's kind of a lame gift to give to an eight-year-old. But when I was seven or eight years old, he gave me a calendar that had like on every page, there was a horse. Like there was one like running in a meadow and, and then one running in a desert and then one just like propped up by a gate or something, you know. Um, but I, I kept that thumbtacked into my wall for like three or four years. And I, I'm pretty sure I just kept it on January. I never changed it, but I, you know, I thought, Calendars were everlasting back then. You get a calendar, you keep it forever. But apparently it's not, it's not quite how it works. Um, I have a total of four calendars now. Five coming on Thursday. I just bought a new quarterly planner. So that'll add my fifth calendar to my collection. And calendars are useful, aren't they? Calendars are, are, are really really helpful. Um, one of my favorite calendars is the Reminders app. You can actually use the Reminders app on your phone as a calendar. If you schedule things to be done on certain days, you can look in the, this is iPhone, so if you don't have an iPhone, I'm sorry about that. But uh, in the iPhone Reminders app, there's a little section that says Scheduled. And you can see your whole list of things that you have scheduled. So it serves me as a good reminder, as a good calendar. Um, my favorite calendar right now is actually called Fantastical. Fantastical. Said bye-bye to Apple calendars and I said bye-bye to Google calendars. I'm all about Fantastical right now and here's why. Because in Fantastical, it's got all of my calendars baked into it. So my Apple calendar, my Google calendar, my preaching calendar, my workflow calendar, my family calendar, my daily events calendar, and yes, I knew you were going to ask, the American USA holiday calendar. It really helps my life to know that in two weeks from now, we're going to be celebrating Columbus Day. I just, I love that that feature's on there. It helps. What if one day, in one of our calendar apps, we had the option to add this calendar. The calendar's titled God's Will. And you just click on that calendar. It sinks into your calendar. And every day, all day long, moment by moment, you see exactly what God wants you to do. That'd be a pretty sweet feature, right? I would pay top dollar for that feature. But what we're going to see in our text is it's it's not always about what does God want me to do, it's when and how does he want me to do it. We can know what God wants us to do and still use inappropriate means to get God's will done. And that's what David's going to be tempted with here in 1 Samuel chapter number 24. In 1 Samuel 24, we pick back up with David. Guess what? He's still on the run from King Saul. He's still on the run. God's will for David's life was revealed several chapters ago. 
God's will for David's life was this. He was a man after God's own heart. And he was going to be the man that God replaced Saul with as king of Israel. He was going to be the man that God established the kingdom of Israel with. That was no doubt God's will for David's life. But in this chapter, David is going to be given what seems to be an opportunity for him to seize God's will for his life. So where are we going? Well, first tonight, we're going to be looking at the opportunity given to David to seize God's will for his life once and for all. Then we're going to look at David actually confronting King Saul. And then we're going to look at Saul's very unusual response to King David. Then we're going to see what's the principle behind all this. What is, what is God wanting us to learn through this text of Scripture? What's the relevance behind it? And then we're going to tie a bow on it and ask, how do we apply it every day? Are we good with that? Let's get into it. Look at chapter 24, verse 1. It says that it came to pass when Saul was returned from following the Philistines that it was told him, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men. Now we know that David only has 600 men with him. It says Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men upon the rocks of the wild goats. And he came to the sheep coats, by the way. It's like sheep pens. Where was a cave? And Saul went in to cover his feet. His feet were cold. I'm kidding. We'll find out what that means later. And David and his men remained in the sides of the cave. What a reveal. That's great writing, isn't it? Pastor David, that's good. David and his men are in there? Are you kidding me? In verse 4 it says, And the men of David said unto him, Behold, David, check it out. The day which the Lord said unto you, Behold, I will deliver thine enemy into thine hand, that thou mayest do to him, it shall be seem good unto thee. Then David arose. He took his men's advice and he cut off the skirt of Saul's robe privily. And it came to pass afterward that David's heart smote him because he had cut off Saul's skirt. And he said unto his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing unto my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch forth mine hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So David stayed his servants with these words. And suffered them not to rise against Saul. But Saul rose up out of the cave and went his way. Saul, we pick up here, is now back on the hunt with David. Or for David. Did you notice that it says he just left a battle with the Philistines? Now usually whenever the Israelites, in chapters previous, whenever the Israelites were battling the Philistines... It usually got a lot more attention than this, didn't it? 
But it says here that Saul, he, he left the battle with the Philistines and now he's back on the trail. It's almost like, it's almost like finding and killing David means more to Saul than wiping out a national foe. It was so important to him that he got 3,000 chosen men. Now these weren't scrubs. No, the scrubs were with David. These were the most elite fighters in all of Israel. And that's who Saul chose to come with him to hunt down David. So as they're on this quest, as they're on this journey, they're going to make camp for the night. And after a long day's journey, you know that Saul's got to find a cave where he can relax and cover his feet. So it says in verse 2 that he stops at the goat in totem. Get it? Like toot and totem? The goat in totem. It says in verse 2, he, the cave of the wild goats. He goes in there, the Bible says, to cover his feet. Now that's a euphemism. I'm not going to get too imaginary here or it, whatever the word is. I'm not going to go there. One commentator eloquently put it this way. He was, he was uh, evacuating his bowels. That's a really eloquent way of putting it, right? He's in the same cave as David and his men. Talk about chance, right? If ever in the moment God's providence was here today in the Bible, this is it. He's been hunting David down. He's been throwing spears at David. He's been giving David a wife and taking her away and making David's life just absolutely miserable. Here it is. And his men pick up on it, don't they? Can you sense the excitement? David's men, finally, finally, David, look, can't you see what's happening? God is giving him over to you. Thank you, God. I imagine they are praising, but probably really quiet because they're still in the same cave with King Saul. They're probably whispering, thank you, God, thank you. Yes, yes David, go kill him, go kill him, go stab him. Go stick it right in his neck, just go do it, do it, you got this. So David's like, uh, yeah, this is it. So David, he sneaks over to where Saul is, and Saul must have had a really good book or something because I don't know how he didn't, how do you not hear that, you know? Like, mercy. A lot of commentators think that there was a, uh, a nearby waterfall that might have concealed any noise David made. So David, he, he finds his way to Saul. and he, he doesn't kill him. He cuts off a piece of his robe. Now, there's all sorts of debate what that actually meant, why he cut off the robe and not his head. We're not going to get into that. It won't actually do anything for our story. What we know, though, is David was convicted about it. Why was he convicted about it? It's just a piece of cloth, right? It's just a piece of clothing. Why would he be so convicted about it? And we actually learn the answer to that in verse 6. It says, And he said unto his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing unto my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch forth mine hand against him, seeing he's the anointed of the Lord. You see, to David, any breach upon Saul would have been a breach upon God, for he was God's anointed king. David realized in that moment, he's still God's man. He, he, he may not uh, be the future king of Israel, but right now in this moment of history, he is still God's king. 
And David realized in that moment, it is, if I do this to Saul, if, if I cut off Saul's head, even since I've cut off his robe, it is not my job, it is not my place to touch the Lord's anointed. I'm going to lead that to God. Can you imagine the disappointment of David's men? Like they're thinking David's going to come back with, <laughs> with his head in his hand, you know? <laughs> Look at him. Blood everywhere. No, it's not what he did. Like, like Goliath. They were thinking Goliath days were going to come back. No. He comes back with a piece of his robe. Can you imagine this disappointment? Like they were going to be able to go back home. They were going to be able to go back to their families. They were going to be able to go back to their everyday lives. They were going to be able to receive full pardon from King David. Now was the time, David. Can you imagine their disappointment? And David says, no, we're, we're not going to do this. We're not going to touch God's anointed king. Then it even says this in verse 7. It says, so David stayed his servant with these words and suffered them not to rise against Saul. So can you see it? They're disappointed in David and they're probably saying this. All right, David, if you're not going to do it, get out of our way. We're going to go kill him right now. He's right here. And it says David stayed them with his, well, Hebrew scholars say this. It, they say in the Hebrew, that, that phrase there, it means that he tore his servants to pieces with those words. That means he wrung them a new one. He sliced them up with his tongue. He probably said something along these lines. He said, if you so much as lay a hand on Saul's head, I'm going to kill every single one of you for doing it. When I'm king, I'll be sure to it that you yourselves die for this. We are not. We are not touching God's man. He stayed on with those words. He rebuked them. He kept them from killing God's king. David, so humbled by this moment, he left the cave which was a seemingly foolish thing to do, to go and present himself to Saul. Okay, why aren't you thinking, David? Not only did you not kill him, now you're going to go present yourself to him and let him know where you and all of us are hiding. It's genius, David. Thanks a lot. Look at verse 8. You see, David pleads his case to Saul with evidence that he wasn't out to kill him. And we're going to see how David leaves the rest up to Saul. Look at verse 8. It says, David also arose afterward and went out of the cave and cried after Saul, saying, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed himself. And David said to Saul, Wherefore, hearest thou men's words, saying, Behold, David seeketh thy heart. Saul, who's telling you these things? Who's telling you that I'm seeking your life, Saul? He says, Behold, this day thine eyes have seen how that the Lord had delivered thee today into mine hand in the cave, and some bade me kill you. These guys were telling me, Off with your head. But mine eye spared thee. And I said, I will not put forth mine hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father. Do you hear the language? He didn't say, My Lord. He didn't say my king. He's saying my father. He's giving him honor. This man that's been chasing him down like a dog. He's giving him honor. Makes no sense to me. 
see, yea, the skirt of thy robe in mine hand, for in that I cut off the skirt of thy robe and killed thee not. Know thou and see that there is neither evil nor transgression in mine hand, and I have not sinned against thee, yet thou huntest my soul to take it. Here's the key. Verse 12, the Lord judge between me and thee, and the Lord avenge me of thee, but mine hand shall not be upon thee. That song is so fitting, wasn't it? You will fight my battles and I'll just be still, right? That's what he's saying. He's saying, Saul, I've got your robe in my hand. I'm not going to kill you. I'm going to let God do the judging between you and I. But my hand won't be upon you. Verse 13, it saith the proverb of the ancients. Wickedness proceedeth from the wicked, but mine hand shall not be upon thee. After whom is the king of Israel come out? After whom dost thou pursue? After a dead dog or a flea? The Lord therefore be judge and judge between me and thee and see and plead my cause and deliver me out of thine hand. What I, what I like about this, this confrontation here, is David was still honest with him. He shows him respect. He shows him honor. But David's still honest. David tells Saul, Saul's going to judge you or God's going to judge you, Saul. Your day's coming. But it's not going to be for me. The Lord is going to judge between you and I. He, did you see the jab he threw at Saul too? He threw a little jab. I don't know if you caught it. After whom, verse 14, is the king of Israel come out? You're the king of Israel, Saul. This is how you're spending your time. You're wasting national resources. You're wasting national armed forces to come out to a dead dog? To a flea? He's kind of throwing a jab in there, isn't he? He's, he's like telling him without telling him, you're not fit to be king, man. Right? But the point is this. Saul, I'm not trying to kill you. I don't know who's filling you full of these lies, but you see in my hand the evidence. I am not trying to kill you. If I wanted to kill you, I would kill you. Saul, this is what I'm going to allow to happen. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to submit to God and let him judge between you and me. And the next we see a rather unusual response from Saul. Look at verse 16. This is, if you start hearing this, and it sounds a little weird, just go like this. You're hearing right, okay? You're, you're hearing Saul right. And it came to pass when David made an end of speaking these words unto Saul, that Saul said, Is this thy voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and, and wept. This is a different side of Saul, is it not? Or maybe since Saul's a little bit bipolar, maybe it's, it's not different. I don't know. Let's, let's see. And he said to David, thou art more righteous than I. For thou hast rewarded me good, whereas I have rewarded thee evil. 
Doesn't sound like Saul to me. And thou hast showed me this day how that thou hast dealt well with me. For as much as when the Lord had delivered me into thine hand, thou killest me not. For if a man find his enemy, will he let him go away well? Wherefore the Lord reward thee good for that thou hast done unto me this day. And now behold, I know well that thou shalt surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in thine hand. Swear now therefore unto me by the Lord that thou wilt not cut off my seed after me and that thou wilt not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore unto Saul and Saul went home. But David and his men got them up unto the hold. It's really unusual, is it not? Saul acknowledges his folly in David's righteousness. He acknowledges that he has been wrong the whole time and David has been righteous the whole time. He acknowledges that someday and someday soon, God is going to establish David's throne. And not just establish it, he's going to make Israel flourish through David. And then he said this, David, would you just spare my family? Spare my family line? Spare my name? Would, would you just do that much for me, David? And David did because he already made that covenant with Jonathan. Saul turns around to go home. The pursuit is off for now. But David and his wisdom and his men stay behind. Saul's unpredictable, is he not? What do we learn from all of this? Here's, I think, the principle that comes from the text. When the opportunity to become king was seemingly in David's lap, David trusted in God's will according to God's word and not in his own timing and tactics. Did you catch that? When the opportunity just fell in his lap to become the next king of Israel, David relied not on his own timing and tactics, but on God's will done God's way by God's word. I'm not going to lay my hand on the Lord's anointed. Saul, I'm going to allow the Lord to judge between you and me. What does that teach us today? Trust in God's will, God's way. That's it. Trust in God's will, God's way. If it's God's will, you don't have to manipulate it for it to come to pass. If it's God's will, you don't have to make it happen with your timing and your tactics. Trust in God's will, God's way. When I surrendered to preach in 2014, I, I knew the, the Lord's plan for me was to go to Bible college and to get an education somewhere and, and learn how to do this. I, I just, I, my first sense when, right when I surrendered, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to have to go to Bible college. Where do I, where do I go? And the first Bible college university that stuck out to me was actually Liberty University. That's, I mean, I heard about Liberty. Um, I, they have like a ski resort or something on their campus or something like that. They always had big name speakers come and teach their chapels. 
I mean, Liberty, it's a huge university. It's like the huge hue of college education, right? I mean, I really don't know, but that's what it was then. So I, I actually wanted to go there really, really badly. I sent in an application. And they accepted my application because, you know, I'm an amazing scholar. <laughs> no, they, would, they want your money, right? I mean, like if I went there, I would still be in debt for going there. That's, that's not a exaggeration by any means. I remember one time I was watching a, a soccer game, 2014, it was the summer, I still didn't know where I was going to go to Bible college, and I was watching this soccer game, and for some reason, I don't know why I was watching soccer, or why it flashed on the screen, but this flashed on the screen, on the little scoreboard panel, Liberty University. I was like, oh, if that's not God, I don't know what is. <laughs> that's God telling me, right? It's God's providence. But then there was a still lingering thought in the back of my mind, how in the world am I going to pay for this school? I don't, like seriously, I didn't have a hundred grand to go pour into this school with uh, finances and books and room and board. Like I was going to have to get student loans up to my eyeballs just to pay for this thing. You know, I was so ignorant to think that I was going to be such a good preacher that if I had all these student loans, I could just preach in stadiums like Billy Graham and they would just pour in offerings to pay off my student loans. You know, I was that ignorant. Luckily, though, by God's grace, uh, he, he made me wait. He made me wait. And, and I'll never forget on the ride to work, I was working in uh, a Seminole area, La Mesa, no, not Seminole, La Mesa, Texas area in the oil field. And there was a sermon that had been uh, playing on our, our car radio from, from I, I turned it on myself. I had started this sermon several times before. And it was a sermon by Sam Davison, who was then the president of Heartland Baptist Bible College. And I listened to the sermon. And in this sermon, he mentioned Heartland Baptist Bible College. I'd never heard of Heartland before. But this guy went on to preach an amazing sermon. And I thought, I got to learn to preach like that. I have to learn how to preach like that guy. That was the most amazing thing I've ever heard in my life. It was great. So I called Heartland that day and signed up and it all worked out. Had I not done that, I, I wouldn't be here preaching to you today. I, I truly believe that, that God's will was for me to go to Heartland and go, to, go through everything I went through at Heartland. I'm glad I'm here debt free rather than somewhere else with about $90,000 left of debt to my name. I don't always get it right. Hardly at all I get it right. But I think that was one instance in my life when I chose to do God's will, God's way. And those situations happen all the time, don't they? Where you're presented with something that is probably God's will, but is this his way or not? I think of a, a, a young Christian single person. You know it's God's will for you to marry and to have a family. You know that. But how's it going to happen? There's no prospects. There's no young Christian young man or no Christian young lady coming around the corner for you to join forces with and, and marry and start a family. But then all of a sudden you, you meet somebody. They're charming. They're charismatic. They're confident in who they are. The way y'all met, it just seems so... So providential. You're thinking, 
I don't know. Could this be it? But there's a catch. They're not a Christian. What do you do then? Man, we're, we're really hitting it off. It really seems like this is God's providence. This seems like this is God's will. I know God wants me to be married. I know he wants me to have a family. I have this desire in my heart. I'm walking with him. What do I do? Well, I don't know anywhere in the Bible where God says, yeah, go ahead and marry someone who's not a follower of Jesus Christ. What do you do? Is this God's providence leading me this way? Or is this temptation to take God's will for my life into my own hands? That situation happens. Situations like it happen. What about a, a lonely teenager or even lonely adult? You've never really had a community of people to really share your life with. And then finally, when you, you find one, a community of people, a group of friends, they approach you, they want to be your friend, they invite you in, they put their arms around you. And you thank God for it. You do, because you just really want to share your life with people around you. But when you get into their circle, you find out that they party, gossip, curse all the time. Their morals don't line up with the morals of Psalm 1 that we're supposed to avoid. Psalm 1 tells us not to walk with the wicked, not to stand with sinners, not to sit with scoffers. So, so it's, it's great that this group of people has, has surrounded you and has brought you in. You think it's God's will for you to have friends in your life? Surely we're all supposed to have friends in our life, right? So is this God's providence just bringing somebody into your life? Or is this temptation to lead you down a road you really don't want to go on? These situations happen, don't they? Think about this. You're looking for a new job. You have, honestly, great motivations. You want a new job for more flexible hours so you can serve at the church more, so you can be with your family more, which would go in front of the church, and then to serve at the church more. You want that new job for those reasons. And then all of a sudden, one plops into your lap. It's got the hours you're looking for. The pay's even better. The benefits are un. Real. It just seems like how this job came to be. This has to be from God. But on the resume, you're going to have to tell a little white lie about your credentials and qualifications to get this job. It's a qualification for something you don't know right now, but you can learn rather quickly. Hey, it won't be a big deal if I just say I can do this and then learn to do it before I actually start the job. This has to be God's providence. There's not a job like this that's ever going to come open for me again. Your motivations are great. You're, you really believe God wants you to pour more time into your family, into your church, into the people around you. But is this job really what God has for you? Or is it a temptation? How do you make decisions like that? How do you navigate decisions like that? I've got one. 
This is really relevant to the text. What if, like David, you're at odds with somebody? Like, like what if somebody's hurt you really, really bad? They're unapologetic. They're not remorseful. They're not repentant. They've hurt you. And now they live as though nothing ever happened. Well, then you learn a little thing or two about them. That if you did a tell-all about them, you could crush them. You could make them feel everything that you felt. What do you do? Is this God's providence for you to finally, once and for all, get even with somebody? Or is this a temptation for you to do something that God definitely does not want you to do? Romans 12 says, You let me be your avenger. You let me fight your battles. Listen to this tonight. The difference between providence and temptation is that when it is truly God's providence, you won't have to do something God wouldn't approve of to have it. It will fall right in line with God's will and God's word. From now on, whenever you have an opportunity that seems like it could be God's providence, but you aren't sure about it, it could be a, a temptation to do something that you know God would want you to do, but you would have to do something that doesn't line up with his will to do so. Think about this statement. Every opportunity, every situation, every decision. Think about this right here. God's will done God's way. Imagine if you thought that three seconds before you made a, a, a crucial decision. Is this really God's way for me to do this that he wants me to do? That's simple, isn't it? We can remember that. God's will done God's way. Because we don't just want God's will in our life. We want to be sure that we are doing God's will in God's way. In closing, consider David's son. I'm not talking about Solomon. Talking about the son of David we got to learn about this morning, Jesus. Satan comes to Jesus. Jesus is hungry. He's tired. Satan says, Jesus, all you have to do. Look at, look at this, Jesus. It's beautiful. Look at all these kingdoms. Look at the whole world. It's all yours and all you have to do is bow to me. Was it God's will for Jesus to be the king of everything? You seem unsure about that. Was it God's will for Jesus to be the king of everything? Yes. Was bowing to Satan the means that God wanted to use to give Jesus everything? Absolutely not. God's will must be done God's way. Would you stand with me?